1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Psychology. I'm Eugenio Duarte, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Carol Janou about her new book, published in 2016 by Balboa Press, entitled Your Innovator Brain, The Truth About ADHD. Carol Janou is a professional ADHD coach with over 40 years of experience and founder and president of Live ADHD Free, one of New England's top ADHD coaching companies. And she's here to talk with us about her strengths based approach to helping people diagnosed with ADHD, or she prefers to call them innovators. Carol, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Ahenia. I want to thank you and New Books in Psychology for having me on today.
1: It's our pleasure. I want to start right at the beginning. What is ADHD?
0: Well that's an interesting question. Um, I spent 40 years working with this brain type and I found that it's much more the brain of people that have enormous capability to make huge com- um, com- contributions, I'm sorry, to the world and have throughout history. Um, the downside to this brain type is that it's difficult to manage behavior and that's because the brain tends to live in the moment. And so whatever um, occurs and looks interesting and motivating and stimulating, the brain's going to want to go there. So it makes it very difficult to start projects on time, follow through, deliver results on time, and stay focused. But the good news is that nobody can give you this amount of innovative ability um, but you certainly can learn how to manage your behavior better. So that's the good news. And I, most people I talk to that have been diagnosed and labeled ADHD find that they would not want anyone to change their brains because they really like the fact that they know they can do amazing things with them, but that they're very frustrated and suffer a lot because they're not able to manage their behavior.
1: So... I'm wondering about those people who haven't been diagnosed with ADHD and maybe are listening to this program. What are the signs that someone might have ADHD and what's the best way to get evaluated?
0: Okay, well, I love that question, Orhenu, because it gives people information about being able to know and explain what has happened to them in their life and continues to happen in their life when things don't go the way they want them to and still be okay with it. It doesn't necessarily have to be a stigma. So to know that you might have the innovative brain type or ADHD as we now know it, you would be very distractible. You would find it very difficult to pay attention to lectures, to conversations that are ongoing, um, especially if you're not interested in the subject matter. You would find it hard to get your projects done. You would find it very easy to procrastinate and very difficult to not procrastinate. You would find that you have impulsivity issues, so you blurt out and you don't think before you talk. And your working memory is, is often affected. We call these executive functions. The, the prefrontal cortex functions allow us to make organized sense of our lives. So you find that working memory, like trying to hold a lot of information in your brain and manipulate it is very difficult because the brain is like shooting rapid firing all over the place. So one of the the, um, strategies that I work with my clients to learn how to use it really benefits them is to do everything externally. Don't expect the brain to be organized. Do it on paper. I
1: see. And I'm thinking about your use of the word innovator, because at the very outset of your book, you argue that the psychiatric community and maybe the society at large view people with ADHD as having a disability or set of deficits, um, particularly since a lot of what people associate with ADHD are all the the struggles that you just named. But in your book, you also or, or you advocate for changing the way we think about these people and seeing them instead as folks who have a particular brain type, what you call innovator brain. What do you mean by innovator?
0: Well, I came up with that concept because after working with people for many, many years, I realized that why are these people called disordered and dysfunctional? Because they're amazing in their ability to do certain things. Very bright people very high intelligence, very good at compensating. That's why they can be successful in spite of the issues that their brain has with keeping organized and staying focused. And I started researching other people with similar brain types and I realized that, oh, wait a minute, hold everything. (laughs) The people that I'm working with may be labeled ADHD, but they have so much more in common with famous people throughout history who also had the same issues or we can reconstruct, we may not know because there were many, many years ago, we can reconstruct through anecdotal records that they had the same brain type and the same issues. And I'm thinking, you know, what is it that everybody that I work with has in common and it's they're more innovators than there are anything else. And I thought that is really a good concept in term because it allows people to see what their strengths are, that we need more than ever in our global environment. Innovators, We need innovation. Look at Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. Same brain. Do they have issues managing their life? Sure, but they have people to help them.
1: Can you name some other famous people with ADHD or innovator brain?
0: Sure. Now, I have to say, unless you've come out and, and self-diagnosed publicly that you have this brain type, you know, I'm only surmising here. I mean, some people have clearly come out and said, yes, yes, I have Michael Phelps being one of them because he's recently on the news. But basically, um, we know that people like Mozart is just so likely to have had the same brain type. Picasso, the Wright brothers, Kennedy's, um, Winston Churchill, and uh, I don't know. (laughs) I could just go on and on and on because there are just so many people that have made great advances. Jonas Salk, I actually got to meet Jonas Salk, he was so ADD, and he was one that came up with the Salk vaccine, the polio vaccine, that to this day has been responsible for saving millions of lives. So, you know, I'm just so um, inspired by people with this brain type, and I don't want them to feel stigmatized. I want them to give their gifts to the world.
1: And I want to emphasize the point I think you're making here, which is not just that people with ADHD or innovator brains sometimes or often happen to also have these gifts. It sounds like what you're saying rather goes further, which is that these folks who have done these great things and come up with these great innovations have been able to do so because of the very thing that has been labeled ADHD. And it sounds like you're suggesting a complete reframe of this concept. Am I getting it right?
0: Oh, Henio, you said it perfectly, and I'm so happy to hear you repeat to me what you heard because that is exactly what I'm saying. And I think my main motivation, my primary motivation, is that I work with people that have been suffering and struggling sometimes for 50, 60, or 70 years, and I don't want that for these wonderful people who have so much to offer. I want them to be able to get help, I want them to be able to understand the talents and strengths of their incredible brains and realize, yes, it can be very annoying to be with a person that has this brain type. They can be very poor communicators. They can be very bad in relationships. And, but there's reasons for that and their reasons have a lot to do with not just their brain type but when you're growing up with this stigma and this label you start feeling really bad about yourself you start feeling incompetent, incapable, stupid and um, you like you don't fit in and I like to say don't fit in because I think that's the best phrase for how it really feels after time and so people with this brain type tend to shut down and suffer and struggle in silence and as so we see children doing this it just breaks
1: your heart Why do you think there is so much stigma around ADHD, and what is the stigma as you see it?
0: Well, I think if you ask somebody with ADHD, they would say, well, I'm always made to feel incompetent when I don't do things on time, when I have to ask for the instructions to be repeated, when I blurt something out. People associate those behaviors with incompetence, so that's the problem, and I mean, there can be quite a backlash for this brain type. People can, I work with a lot of people in the workplace and bosses and supervisors and coworkers can say, you know, I just had enough. I just had enough of this. You know, they don't care. If they cared, they would be different. And so I'm on a mission to educate people to understand what is really going on with the behavior and how people tend to misinterpret it. Understanding at the same time, it's annoying. It can yeah. be very annoying.
1: So then let's let's talk about some of the assets of having an innovator brain one of the first that jumps out at me is what you call a surplus of attention you you say that they have a surplus of attention and then you put it another way later in the book you say they have the ability to hyper focus on something to the exclusion of everything else now i have loved ones and friends with adhd and i've always noticed this but i've never read anything that helps me understand it even though it's always baffled me that some of the people I know who identify as having ADHD, sometimes they seem much more focused on something than I could ever be. Can Can you help us make sense of that?
0: That's That's a great question, too. It's very difficult to pay attention for periods of time. People have different segments of time some people can use the pomodoro method i can plug that because i love it it's works with people with adhd which is 25 minutes of sustained focus and five to two, maybe seven minutes break and then back on again um so once you develop a strategy for how you can focus even on things that are Boring, and that's the kiss of death for people with ADHD, the boring things are so hard because it requires so much um, attention and it becomes uh, so hard to force that. So but people with ADHD are always better when they're focused on something they're interested in. So that, that takes a lot of strategizing. Um, but the whole thing about hyperfocusing is good and bad. Hyperfocusing, I think, is the brain's attempt to say, look, this is really important. we got to take care of it, so we're going to block everything out. Everything is blocked out. Now, that's good, Eugenio, as you can imagine, because now you've got your sustained attention, and usually that's when something is due the next day or a few hours, and you got to get it done, but you do great work in in hyperfocusing. However, let's say you have a meeting to go to and the meeting is an hour and a half, and you haven't done set an alarm and done something to remind you, what's going to happen? What's going to happen is you're going to forget the meeting because you're going to be so hyper-focused. So it's a good thing, but it needs to be
1: managed. Now, what do you say to skeptics who might hear this and think, well, you know, we all have to deal with things that are boring, and we have to find a way to get over it or deal with it? Why why does one need a special label for that?
0: That's another good question. I think that the difference is this particular brain type... Let me give you an example. Um, Using Jonas Salk again, if you want to find a cure for something like polio or cancer or multiple sclerosis or something that plagues the world, you want an innovator brain type. Why is that? Because linear thinkers tend to go through the alphabet, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, in that way, but people with the innovator brain, ADHD... Tend to use this incredible intuitive ability that they have. And they will go AFPQR. And what they're doing is they're following a stream of intuitive consciousness and, and brilliance to find the cures. So I wouldn't be surprised if I did more research and looked into more of the personality profiles of people that are finding cures and making incredible advancements in science. Now, in our current time, I wouldn't be surprised to find out they had the innovator brain type.
1: I'm glad you mentioned non nonlinear thinking because that is something that jumped out at me from the book. Um, innovators have more of this than the rest of us. Can you say a little more about what What is nonlinear thinking and how does it work?
0: Okay, so the gift of ADHD is also the plague of ADHD. The gift is that you follow an instinct... So instead of just saying, okay, step one, I need to look at, um, let's just take an example. Step one, I need to look at the formulas for how to solve this um, geometric problem. So I look at the formulas, and I say, okay, now these formulas, it looks like these. I should probably study the this particular set. So I study that set, and what I've learned, okay, so now I understand that there's something, Um, that I need to find out because I don't understand it to solve the problem. So it's a series of steps. Whereas with ADHD, what you're going to do is you're going to look at the problem, you're going to see the possibilities, you're going to say that one looks most likely, and you're going to try it. And by trying that one, it works or it doesn't work, then you're going to go on to the next most likely one. The skipping around, jumping around works for problem solving more than and quicker let's say better and quicker not always you know I don't want to make things like black and white and everything's this way or that way but oftentimes, the instinctive problem solving and skipping around gets things done better and quicker and that's why most of our CEOs and I will say this completely honestly and believe you know you can take this to the bank Um, most of our CEOs have ADHD and the reason they do is because they're so good at managing companies and solving problems and making them work so how do they do it? They have this enormous amount of people, this, this structure of people that care for them, that make sure they stay focused, they, stay, they communicate, they get everything done, things get sent off in time. So they're the brilliant idea people, and then they have all of their associates and people that work underneath to support them.
1: I, I also want to talk about impulsivity because it's one of the things that people with innovator brains struggle with the most, but you make the case in your book that impulsivity can be an asset. In certain situations, what what kind of situations? Well,
0: it's impulsivity is great when you have to solve a problem right away. Like I'll do a personal example. Um, my friends say, you know, I don't know if I can live with you on a daily basis, but if I was stuck on an island and there was no way whatsoever to get off and get home again, I'd want you leading the leading the pack, <laughs> you know, because and, and that may, basically means that um, in a pinch. I'm going to be the one you're going to turn to because I'm going to be the one that says, okay, let's get our heads together. What do we have here in the way of, you know, kind of one of those survivor moments in the way of materials? How can we use them? You do this. You do that. I'll do this. And no, that didn't work. Okay, try this. So I'm going to take charge and I'm going to come up with all the ideas and I'm going to make everybody do what they need to do and and shift when shifting needs to happen. We just have that ability because a challenge is what we love. We thrive on challenge. So give us a
1: challenge, and we'll rise to the occasion. And what what about deadlines? According to the book, part of the problem in meeting deadlines is that innovators can be, in addition to creative, also a bit perfectionistic, and your advice is that they need to learn how to accept work that is good enough. Now, in, in your coaching, I'm wondering how you teach a person to distinguish between when they need to persist and keep working on something, and when it's time to stop and say, this is good enough. In
0: coaching, what I often do with people, I'll just give you one example because this is the most typical one. What I often do with people that have this professionistic tendency, I used to think it was learned, but now I think it's just part of the brain type. It's, it's just its so common and, and always there. Um, so what I do is I teach them how to put things into time frames. The problem with perfectionism, if you have unlimited time, you can keep going. And you keep going, you keep going. There's this detour. There's, and kids would say, well, did you hand your project in on time? No, I didn't. Because I went off on a tangent, and then by the time I came back, I didn't have time to finish it. So, the idea is if you had something, if you have to fit something into a time frame, that means that you're going to have to be very targeted and strategic about what you do so I have them write down what exactly the steps are that they're going to do and by the way Ohenio, a lot of what I do is I help my clients build new neural pathways which means train the brain so a lot of our work together is training the brain how to be organized and how to do these things and so you start at the very beginning what is the goal what are the steps how will I evaluate the steps how much time do I have to fit it in here and how will I stay focused and not off on some tangent? So there's a reward system, a consequence system, the Oreo cookie system where, you know, you put two things between, I'm sorry, you put what you have to do that's hard to complete in a period of time between two things that have to happen like breakfast and your tasks that you have a hard time completing and then a meeting that you're having. So you have a hard start and a hard stop. So, the Oreo cookie strategy can work really well for people to learn to fit those things in the time frames. This, by the way, is a very can be very difficult to overcome. It takes time, it takes reinforcement.
1: Well, and I'm, I'm, I imagine that because so much of this starts and ends in the brain, it speaks to the fact that there's great potential here, but there's also probably, I imagine, a lot of resistance and a lot of practice that has to happen. And I'm, I'm wondering how you, in your work with people, how do you teach them to stick to the timelines that they've made when they might be so tempted not to?
0: Well, I think it's like a lot of things in life. When you want to change your behavior, you've got to kind of fasten your seatbelt. You know, you're going to have to go through different understandings and the more you understand what's going on, because we always think we know that as a psychologist, you know, that we're not always consciously aware of what our motivations are, and what's really going on with us. That's why we hire people to help us there. So it's the same thing here. You know, you realize that you need to slow down and focus. And the way to do that is to stop, put your hands up, take a deep breath and say, okay, what am I missing here? Which is one of the things I teach my clients. First of all, you hear that, and then you hear it again. You hear, did you use it? No, oh, I forgot about it. Oh, yeah, I remember to use it one time this, this week. You know, it's, a, it's an incremental growth that you learn to do, and what you're learning to do is change your behavior. And changing behavior is very, it's not easy to do. It can be time-consuming, and it means you have to keep things, you know, you already have a busy life, and all of a sudden you got to keep these things in mind. So we use sticky system. We sticky's all over. Remember the goal this week is to learn to manage that hour at between one and two. And so that's your goal. But the question was, how do people stay on track with changing behavior? How do you do it? How do you keep them engaged and motivated?
1: Right. Is that right? Right, right exactly. So I wanted to ask you a similar question about risk taking, because you explained that innovators like to take risks. But similarly, they need to learn the difference between good and bad risks. What is the difference and how do you teach it?
0: That's not easy, Ohenio, because we are natural risk takers. We're the ones that are going to jump out of planes and drive the race cars really fast and, you know, get caught driving too fast on the road. And the way that I tend to work with that is to help people understand what the consequences are. Um, Are you really willing to risk getting a ticket, having your license suspended? You have a family. Do you think it's okay to be jumping out of planes? What if your family lost you? I try to help them make good decisions for themselves. And I think that most times when people have a chance to think about their behavior and the effect it has on other people, it's not just their desired Um, stimulating effect but the the, the effect of their behavior on other people they tend to make better decisions for themselves but honestly there are people with this brain type that are just risk takers I think they're probably the ones on TV doing all that crazy stuff
1: Why do you think that is? What is it about the innovator brain that um, makes people attracted to risks? You're
0: always seeking stimulation your body is fully engaged and excited and everything is, is your pistons are firing so to speak. Everything is moving and working together in unison when you the more stimulated you are. And the reason for that is because our brain tends to have two different states we either on or we're off. We're either engaged or we're not at all. So the brain to compensate for that sleepy brain, which is sometimes called, has a tendency to seek stimulation, to keep it going. And some people take that to a higher degree than other people.
1: Yeah, and you did a great job, I think, of explaining this concept in the book, the concept of waking up the brain. And I, I was particularly interested in what you called games of stimulation, the idea that folks sometimes wait till the last minute to do something because it actually makes the work much more exciting. I had never thought of it that way. Can you talk about that?
0: Right, well, we call the adrenaline strategy. <laughs> And it's not one that I advocate, but it does work. Unfortunately, it works a little bit too well. So people often use the adrenaline strategy way longer than they should. And then the adrenaline strategy just stops working, and they can't actually do what they used to be able to do in that time frame. And so now they're getting poor results at the, in the workplace or at home when they're supposed to be doing certain things. And basically, the adrenaline strategy is if you – the longer you wait, the more the the necessity – is rearing its head like okay oh i can do this tomorrow i don't have to do this it can wait i'll i'm tired right now do it later you give yourself all these excuses and basically lie to yourself about how you're going to do things closer it gets the closer it gets you know that at some point the adrenaline is going to start flowing and that's what you use because remember the dopamine and norepinephrine the things that are supposed to be you know firing the synapses in the prefrontal cortex are not doing their job it's like you know, you've got the hardware, but the software isn't working as well as it should be. So you're looking actively, your brain is looking for ways to get it done anyway because it knows that there's consequences out there. So that's why people use that.
1: But you know, I, I work with students in my practice, so I hear a lot about assignments and term papers, and therefore I hear a lot about procrastination. And I, I, I encounter this sort of phenomenon a lot. And when my clients talk to me about this, they sound so tortured and, and so pained when they are describing these last-minute struggles to get the work done. But I wonder if what you're inviting us to consider is that on some level, and we don't know if they're doing this, or we're not saying they're doing it consciously, but I wonder if you're suggesting that on some level, they do this by design because it's the way they can get through the work, because it's a way that they can make the work much more exciting and interesting.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things that has the upside and the downside. You know, they get through the work and they make, they can come up with some good conclusions with, with this, some good project results. But the downside is that it's not, um, it doesn't increase their confidence in themselves. It doesn't make them feel good about themselves. It doesn't make them feel competent, but it works. And I think when you're a child with ADHD You're starting to notice around first, second, third grade, sometimes before, that you're different from the other kids. They seem to know what to do. You seem to not know what to do. You seem to make mistakes. You know, when somebody calls your name to get in line, you seem to don't hear it. And everybody's looking at you like, what's your problem? So not only the teachers are getting annoyed with you, the children around you, your, your classmates are getting annoyed with you. Well, what happens is you grab onto any strategy that works. And it's your lifeline. It means that's how you're going to survive. So these are survival strategies. And when I work with my clients, I make sure they understand that and that we're not going to remove them. The thing about coaching I love is we're not trying to fix anybody. We're not taking away anything you do. We're teaching you how to make distinctions so you can decide when impulsivity is good, when it's not, and when last minute is good and when it's not, and what you can use otherwise. And then I work with you to create more um, reliable habits so that you now have a habit of looking for other ways to do things and not stuck with just you know the ones you you, you used growing up to manage your survival
1: you, you bring up a very important topic in the book that I think um, pervades everything we're talking about here which is the computer you call it a minefield and I can see why that is because we need to use it for everything And and by computer I think we should also include all sorts of electronic devices which are very diffi- becoming increasingly more difficult to, to not live with. Why is a computer or why are devices a, a minefield and how do you help people who have a tendency to spend hours on the computer or some other electronic device um, especially if he or she never thought that this behavior was perhaps connected to their ADHD?
0: Well, that's That's such a good question. Um, Actually, think about devices, technology. It's very stimulating. They're very stimulating environments. I once did a um, nationwide podcast on screen addiction, and one of the comments that one of the people that I interviewed made was the world isn't interesting the world isn't worth going engaging in like online gaming is like online you know it's so much more interesting and interactive and stimulating and fun and happy making I'd rather be online so that's one thing that's a stimulating effect the other thing is that it's a way to waste time it's a way to to relax, and like the TV kind of thing. So you go on the computer and you go, but, but you do it to your detriment because what happens is you don't realize you're going to spend five or ten minutes and you get fully engaged in something and you waste so much time. A lot of my clients in the workplace have this issue, so we have to teach them how to manage it. But also the interesting thing or the obvious thing I'm sure that everybody is that some of our best IT people and our best um, gaming people, Google, is, I'm sure Google is full of people with this brain type, you know, and, and other, other other such companies, Apple included. So geeks often have this brain type. What would we do without those guys? You know, we love them to death.
1: I, I want to switch now and, and talk a bit about relationships and what what it's like for innovators in relationships and also what it's like for... Uh, people who are in relationships with innovators. One of the things I found most helpful about the book is that you address address both sides of the issue so that everyone might learn something about how to work with this kind of situation. Could you tell us in your experience how ADHD affects relationships?
0: Sure. And um, there's many ways we could talk about that. When a family both partners both parents and children have adhd that can be a very complicated family because there's nobody there who can make sure that things are are happening the way they need to be happening in an organized way and getting done the way they need to be done so those families often need help as far as relationships go with adhd I think the biggest, my experience has been that the biggest issue is just feeling bad about yourself because you know you're going to disappoint. And I think that when we think we're going to disappoint because we think we are disappointing people, then that can be like a self-fulfilling prophecy. We create disappointment. And the the people around us that we Feel like we're worried about disappointing, get disappointed. It's kind of that circle. But if we are accepted and the emotional aspect of ADHD is worked with so that the people they need to realize, you know, just because you have these issues doesn't make you bad or incompetent. And the people they relate to can understand better how to support them, not just how to understand them, but to write things down. If you want somebody with ADHD to do it, you want your husband to pick up stuff, write it down, put it in a text message. Don't just give it to him because in one ear and out the other kind of thing. So it's, it's both people. The people on the receiving end of the ADHD person can learn. Strategies that are very easy to apply on how to work successfully with their partner. And the person who has ADHD needs to get healed, needs to have therapy, coaching, and um, uh, to, to develop a better understanding and be more self accepting of who they are and why things they happen the way they do and what they can do about it so they're not left without confidence and belief in themselves.
1: You, you talk about the phenomenon of shutting down, that this is something that innovators do a lot. What what is shutting down, and why do innovators do it so much?
0: Imagine being a child, and you are, it's your, it's your second week in first grade, and the teacher says, line up at the door. We're getting ready to go outside, and don't forget to bring your jacket. So of that, because you're new and because you have ADHD and because you were thinking about something else, you might have gotten one of those instructions. You better get over there where the other kids are. So you go over there to where the other kids are. The teacher looks at you and says, well, where's your jacket? You can't go outside without a jacket. And you get shamed. You feel like, oh, everybody's got their jacket but me. Now imagine that just, you know, continue to happen day after day in different ways. Why didn't you bring your pencil? Didn't I tell you to bring your pencil? Didn't I already give you those instructions? Are you not listening to me? Don't you care? Imagine as a little kid hearing that and you ask for help. But nobody gives you help. They just give you their version, mirror back to you, their frustration. Nobody can help you. You can't help yourself. So is the survival instinct. It's like, there's nothing I can do about this. The only way I can survive is to just shut it out, shut down, and, get, and just take myself away so that I can have some time to rebuild myself a little bit before I engage again.
1: I imagine that this would be a problem layer on an adult life in a relationship and particularly when maybe there is a conflict and one of the parties wants to discuss it and and that would be a moment where a person with adhd might shut down when it's precisely not the thing that the situation calls for how how does someone with with an innovator brain get through that Oh,
0: Henya, you are so right on you really get it i can tell um that's exactly what happens is these patterns are laid down in childhood so as soon as that memory gets triggered then I'm going to respond with oh well I you know, I, you know, can we talk about this later? <laughs> or I don't know. Why don't you just get somebody else to do it? Or you're going to react. You're going to respond. You're going to shut down. Or you're going to deal with it in the moment. Then you're going to go downstairs and, and you're going to spend the rest of the night on the computer and forget about everybody, everybody else and everything else that could be really important because you're trying to survive in that moment. So these things do get triggered. So a lot of ADHD coaching and rehabilitation for people with a sprain type to stop the suffering and struggling is to go back and heal the past. And that's what I do with all of my clients. We go back and we heal the past. We reinterpret those things that have happened so they can let go of the past slowly but surely and allow themselves to take steps in reality in the in the present and in the future because otherwise they're living in the past and they're not going to change anything living in the past. And by that I mean they continue to respond from those painful memories every time a new similar situation appears.
1: What advice do you have for a non-ADHD partner or loved one of someone with ADHD, particularly when this kind of shutting down happens?
0: Well, I think the most important thing is to reach out for help. Find a professional that really, really understands the ADHD innovator brain and get help because it's not something that can be easily remedied with one strategy. But um, typically, once you understand, see, the person with ADHD won't know the trigger, won't know, be conscious of what's going on. So that's what I mean. The, the, their partner who's not ADHD needs to get help so they can then say to their partner who has ADHD, hang on just a minute. I think I triggered a, um, a painful memory. In the past, let's take a deep breath. And what can I say differently? So now you're telling them, "Look, you know, I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean for that to trigger." Um, you're feeling bad about yourself, and I want to work with you on this. And I know we can do this in a different way. So let's talk about it. Otherwise, the emotional connection from the past keeps going, and then there could, there could be fights, or the person just goes and leaves this, the
1: scene. You know, we talked earlier about impulsivity. And I'm wondering how impulsivity affects communication. Um, You talk in the book about how innovators sometimes have a tendency of interrupting or blurting things out. How do innovators work through that and get better with that?
0: All right. So that's another thing we, we often work on. And I have them, first of all, spend time with me going over when this happens. I want them to really understand there are certain situations and certain stimuli that create these things. Typically, it happens when they're feeling uncomfortable. And um, if for whatever reason, they are somewhere where they don't feel, they're intimidated or they don't feel like they're, they're prepared. So we talk about that. And I have them do intentional um, segmenting. And what that means is before you go into a meeting, because you gotta, if you don't tell your brain what to do, it's going to do whatever it wants to. That's just the nature of it. Before you go into a meeting, tell your brain, we're going to be in this meeting for 45 minutes. And during that time, we're going to listen and take notes to John and Mary. And we're going to take notes under these headings I already wrote in my little book. So that when I hear something has to do with that heading, I'll write it down. Because that's what I need to remember. And that's going to be important for me. And then... I'm going to have these questions. I'm going to write these questions down, and I'm going to be sure I ask my questions before I leave the meeting. And so what you do is you're kind of scripting it so that you can follow that script, and you know that at the top you've got, I have sometimes to draw a mouth, an open mouth, (laughs) and then I have them draw an arrow to a closed mouth, and pictures are worth a thousand words, right? So they see that, and then they see their script, and then because they're viewing it, they they follow it uh-huh. and the brain has something to follow you know it doesn't have to just be impulsive when it feels like it now sometimes you can't have a script written down so we practice things like when you go into the meeting you know don't say anything until you spent at my minute thinking about it what you want to say why you're saying it who you're saying it to and i'm tra- i'm training the persons to train their brain to slow down and think first, and that's just not the natural way the brain
1: operates. I think there's so much that you seem to have experience teaching innovators to to learn and get better at, but because your approach is so strength-based, I'm also wondering if there are things in relationships or even at work that people without ADHD, people who do not have an innovator brain, should be learning from people who do have an innovator brain. Are there things that innovators are better at when it comes to communication or work than those without an innovator brain?
0: First of all, I think that would be great for people with with the innovator brain, ADHD, um, to know that people are interested, instead of finding fault with them, but are interested... I think that the problem-solving, you take a person, an innovator, and you sit them down and you say, okay, you know, we're struggling with this over on our team. And your team got it. Well, how did you get it so quickly? What did you do? What was the process you went through? Now, that doesn't mean that the person, the linear thinker, or maybe another person with ADHD, really doesn't matter, is necessarily going to be able to go through the same process. But they're going to understand what the difference is. Because it's such an instinctive strength in the brain you know it's just, i know the more research on the brain that has to do with this brain type more we're going to realize that there's some kind of a special part of the brain that is really strong and it has to do with instinct and intuition and just a knowing of how to, to make things work in a certain way it's hard to partake i mean it's hard to give that to somebody else but you can certainly tell them how you how you um, got to your conclusion and there can be a lot learned from that
1: Have you ever met anyone who does not identify as having an innovator brain or ADHD who has been jealous of the kinds of abilities that you or some of your clients have?
0: The people that really understand and appreciate the gifts of innovators will often say things like that. You know, I wish I had what he has or she has um, because I have to... Plod through it. I have to just go, you know, one step and after another, and figure out things in in a laborious way. And he just seems to just jump there, and she just seems to know what to say or what to do. So um, I think. You know, if when we get to that point where people with ADHD, or innovator people, are able to advocate for themselves, feel good enough about themselves, they just kind of laugh about them. Yeah, I'm distracted, and I might just blurt out something that means. I just want to let you guys know that's going to happen, but I'm also probably going to be one of the people's going to help figure out the problem that we've got here and the, what the solution needs to be. I want people to get to that point where they can laugh and they can make fun of it and they can say, yeah, I'm this, this, and this, and I'm working on it, but in the meantime, you want me on your team.
1: I want to talk a bit about children, though, because we've we've been talking a lot about adults and touched on children a bit, but as I understand it, ADHD is not always the same In children, as it is in adults, Um, how is ADHD different in children? What are some of the the early signs?
0: Okay, there are two kinds of ADHD, more or less. One is the unfocused kind, the distracted kind, and the other is the hyperactive kind. Now, the distracted kind does not have the hyperactivity; it has the external hyperactivity, like you can't. The body's got to. Move and there's fidgeting, and you have got to get up out of your seat, and you got to go over there and come back, and you just can't sit still. The person who doesn't have that body involved, it's all happening in the head. You're very distracted. You're not paying attention. You're thinking about lunch and what did you, you know, what did he just say? And I don't know. The difference in children is that the child who's distracted in the head, um, and not the body, exhibiting the, the, the hyperactivity, can be overlooked. Whereas the hyperactive child may be annoying, but they're going to get the attention because they're being obvious and they're they're distracting and disturbing people. So they're often the boys. The girls tend to be the ones who kind of just sit and and space out and um, daydream. The boys are the ones that, that get the attention. So it's not great to be bumping into kids and having the kids get mad at you or to be impulsively knocking somebody out of the way. But it does give you, you know, somebody to talk to and, and, you know, pull pull you out of class and maybe give you a psychological assessment and start looking at what's going on with you. But a lot of the hyperactivity goes away in adulthood and becomes more like type A personality, just a a person who's moving around a lot and just quick and, you know, always fast at everything they do. And, you know, there he goes. Oh, there he went. (laughs) Well, I think I saw him. He's got a flash by me. So that, that's how the hyperactive component gets worked out in adulthood.
1: You mentioned a psychological assessment. I'm, I'm wondering what you think is the first thing that parents should do if they suspect that their child has ADHD?
0: Okay. The first thing they want to do is they want to make sure they understand what it is. And I, I'm a, an advocate and proponent for looking at as many different opinions as possible, like what is, what does is the World Health Organization say about it? What does your pediatrician say about it? What does your what does their psychiatrist say about it? what What do the um, ADHD or websites and organizations online say about it and learn as much as you can a well-informed parent is going to be able to make better decisions for their children so I often have my parents do that we and I have I send them off with um an itinerary of all the things I want them to look into and learn at, you know, in addition to what I'm telling them so that they can advocate for their child because it can be a little tricky. You've got the school and the school services that the school is supposed to provide based on the Americans with Disabilities Act. Then, then you've got the fact that the teachers and um, need to make certain accommodations for the child. Then you've got to you have a neuropsych test, which is the one that, that gives you the official diagnosis and allows you to have accommodations in this classroom or in the workplace if you're an adult. So, you know, make sure you learn as much as you can. Um, don't give up. If there's any resistance, go around the resistance, find help. And make sure that your child has somebody they're learning from at a very early age about the wonders and splendors of their amazing brain and how it's going to be such a wonderful brain to have throughout their life and it's going to give them great successes and happiness. Um, and it also comes with things that are going to make them different and to make sure they understand that they're different. If the world worked like people with ADHD work, then everybody with ADHD would oh, this is cool. I like this. I'm happy. Everything's fine. And the the linear thinkers would be in the minority, and they would be suffering. So it's important for your child to know you're just different, but you're different in a lot of good ways. But not everybody's going to get it. So this is what you do when they don't. I love it when I see young children who can advocate for themselves. Yes, I can be distracted. That's what we call. I'm distracted. But if you help me, I can learn how to do that. Or if you just get out of the way, I think I know what to do. If you can empower young children with this brain type, this can
1: save a lot of suffering and struggling. Well, what do you say to parents with ADHD children? Especially, one more thing, I want to say, especially before fourth grade. Why, why that distinction? Why especially before fourth grade? Because
0: it's in fourth grade that the subject matter in schools tends to become more mature. So now they've got different subject matters and they have different teachers and different things going on. And they're starting to be become invested in being accepted by their peer group. And if, there's, if they haven't gotten help by fourth grade first second and third grade tends to be a very accommodating inclusive group of kids it's in fourth grade when they start deciding who's who and who they like and who they don't like and who's okay and who isn't okay and who's qualified capable and who isn't capable That's why i meant said that
1: so i'm also i am wondering about the parents and particularly about parents of adhd children who are hearing you and want so desperately to be able to provide a more strength-based response to their children and celebrate their gifts. But on a day-to-day level, they might not know how because they can get so frustrated and hopeless about how to help their children with the things that they struggle with. What do you say to those parents?
0: Oh, that's a really very important question. And basically what I say to these parents are find a support system. You need a support system. Parental support systems are the best get in touch with other parents who have children that have the same brain types and are having the same issues form a cadre form a group there's a lot of power in a, in parent groups when they're formed around certain specific issues i was in education for many years i've seen parent groups like that do wonders wonders for the children that are that are that fit within that group and need resources i would also encourage them to get involved with any talks or workshops or things going on in their community, try to bring people, professionals into their community and then and, and be sure And include professionals. Like there's all kinds of professionals that can help people with ADHD. Sometimes the speech and language that children need, occupational therapists. um, And ADHD coaches are particularly good because they're the ones that can help the children understand their brain, how to use it, how to be empowered in spite of the fact that they're going to make mistakes, why things happen the way they do. And I, I get so excited when I work with young children and I see them turn into advocates or before they felt so defeated. So um, understand your kids, but mostly get help. It's hard to be a parent of an ADHD kid. It's exhausting. It can be very demoralizing at times when your child is, you know, not doing what they want to do. They're not supposed to do rather. They're not listening. They're not paying attention. They're not bringing their homework. They're not bringing their notes home. The teachers don't seem to be helping. Parents need support. So I really encourage parents to be sure and get support for yourself. You
1: can't do it alone. So I want to talk about Coaching, particularly what it is, and how is ADHD coaching different from uh, psychotherapy for someone with ADHD?
0: Well, I'm an advocate of both, to be honest with you. I love psychotherapy. I think psychology and psychotherapists are the most important people because they really help us heal, they really help us understand ourselves just so critical coaching is different in that if you put two people, therapists in a car if you put a therapist and a coach in a car the therapist would be looking backwards and the coach is looking forward so the therapist is trying to help what's gone down what's happened in the past what feelings and what incidents and events and things like that happened to the child the coach is looking for is saying okay we know this has happened we know this is how you feel we know this is this is what's going on right now let's look at a different way to do this so it's important for coaches to understand all the emotional components and everything that has happened to the child or the the adult but it's most important to be able to come up with success when i do couples coaching couples often tell me therapy was great but coaching is helping us do something right now, because right now, if we don't do it, we're going to be separated, and we're at each other's throats, so we need help. So coaches help you come up with the strategies, the plans, keep you there, don't let you quit, don't let you fall off track without getting back on, make sure you understand what you're doing, make sure that you, you know, own it, and that you, can, you have a plan, and that you work the plan, and we measure your success.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about how your ADHD coaching uh, works in, in terms of frequency, duration, um, the kinds of assignments that you give. I, I'm wondering how it's structured differently from therapy.
0: Okay. Um, by the way, coaching is more like CBT than it is cognitive behavioral therapy than it is anything else. Just I thought I'd throw that out there for people who want to kind of have some way of understanding what I'm talking about. So um, basically, coaches meet with their clients once a week, and any child from 13 on up can be coached because it's a partnership and by partnership i mean that we work together to create whatever gets created and the ownership is there's nothing i will make anybody do or you know any recipe i'm going to give you the ownership has to be yours and you have to commit to going out and doing things in between sessions so once a week a partnership if the child is under 13 then it's usually a combination of school parents and child there's a team approach there. It's a very, very different way of doing things because a child uh, under 12, some 12-year-olds 12 can do it, but mostly under 12, can't be, they're not mature enough to be in a partnership. And what we do is we first, was kind of a two-way street. We're looking at healing the past and we're looking at creating a better future and how that affects now. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to ask you what it is that you need, you feel like you need. And so for a child, it would be, you know, where are you most unhappy? And I, with a child, I might start with, "Tell me what you like about school. What's really going well?" And eventually get to the part, well, "What's not working for you?" And um, what do you think is going on? Coaches ask what questions. We don't ask why questions, or you know, we we don't want to get any, any, anybody defensive. So we're trying to do, we're trying to create the. Um, The ability for our clients to go to their all inner knowing to their because we know our clients already have the answers they're just not in touch with them, so we're always helping asking what what could you do about that what do you think is missing what do you want so a child might say well um, I really want to be able to go out for recess but I can't go out for recess because I never finished my spelling in time well what do you think you could do differently than you're doing with your spelling well. I talk to my friends sometimes when I'm doing my spelling. Well, what if you talk to your friends after spelling at recess, save that. Now, this may seem very simplistic, but it's a child we're talking about, and children may not have thought about that. So what you're doing trying to empower the child and give the child the opportunity to look at other options. Now, they've come up with it. Hey, I got a new idea. You know, was it wasn't yours that you gave to them. They've come up with it. And it's kind of the way coaching works. And you invest more and more in your own understanding of things, and I help you strategize because I can fill in the blanks.
1: What do you think about medication for ADHD? What are the pros and the cons?
0: Medication is a personal decision. I often have the conversation with my clients by advising them that there are different ways of approaching medication, that uh, what I have learned, even though I'm not a doctor and don't prescribe, what I've learned is that some people are greatly helped by medication. Some people aren't helped very much by medication. And then there's everybody in between so that people can make a good decision for themselves. I personally found that ADHD medications are worth at least trying because I think it's worth it for the person to see if there's any it, it, what kind of result they could get from it. If it's a big enough result, it might make a huge difference in their life. People once asked me, and I think it's in the book, five put a five-year-old medication. I would put a five-year-old medication if that saved the five-year-old. You know, the five-year-old I talk about in the book was he could not exist in the classroom. The medication allowed him to. And when you think about saving somebody's self-esteem, which is basically saving their life, and you're being monitored by a doctor while you're taking those medications, and there's no side effects anybody's worried about, it's tricky. It's different for everybody. But I really think people should explore the possibility just so they know if it's worth them doing it.
1: You know, you have a funny anecdote in the book where you describe your personal strategies for staying on track with your life goals, and I'm sure you share this with your clients. It's basically a list in which you repeat the importance of taking your planner everywhere, then reminding yourself to take your planner everywhere, and then leaving notes around the house reminding you to take your planner everywhere. It sounds like having a planner is pretty central for innovators. Is that true? It's so
0: true, and it's because it's, I sometimes refer to the what's going on in the consciousness as as um, alphabet soup. When I was growing up we had alphabet soup, but alphabets and tomatoes and you know, some kind of alphabet aroney kind of soup. Anyway, so it's very difficult to be organized up there in our minds by just thinking about it. I teach people how to organize their brain externally. And oftentimes I like to start on paper with pencil because it's only recently in our evolution that human beings have been tapping keys. The brain still um, grows and, and builds a neural pathway between the hand and the paper and the pencil, which has been going on for a much longer period of time. So we start there. And I teach them how important it is to plan externally, to write everything down. I teach them the whole system. But it has to be reinforced. So there's got to be reminders. And I got to, you know, They've got to remind themselves when they come back. They said, oh, I forgot to do this and I didn't do that. But I did do this. So we start with the wins. What did you do that worked? How did you get the planning on Monday to work? And let's forget about Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And through that system, they eventually learn how to plan and, and, and why the, it's important because the organization happens externally, not internally in the brain.
1: For our listeners who are curious, Do you identify as an innovator yourself or as a person with ADHD yourself? Absolutely. Absolutely. Go ahead. Do you find find yourself drawing from your personal experiences in not just how you work with your coaches, but in how you've put together a, a, a company of coaches who help people with ADHD?
0: It's funny because for the longest time I didn't know why I was drawn to kids with ADHD in educational settings. And then my son got diagnosed. <laughs> I'll never forget it. And and I that was, it's funny. I mean, nobody had ever said anything to me. I had not had the light bulb go off, but I was always drawn to working with children with, ad you know, ADHD. And when my son got diagnosed, and I, and I started looking at the psycho, um, the, the test, the, the can't you know the, the the neurological test that he was taking, and the results and everything, and I. I said, oh, this is starting to explain things. So I kind of self-diagnosed at that point and realized that I had the same brain type, of course, and I knew that if my son had it, I had to have it, his father had to have it, I think both of us had it. And that's when I realized that that was the reason I was so drawn to work with children, and then I became interested in working with adults, so from that I created my, my business, but my interest is that people that are not being served and not being understood, that have great potential, that should not continue. We have got to learn that it's easy to set up support structures for people with ADHD and allow them to, to really participate in the world, in economy, and every other area using their strengths to be able
1: to offer gifts to, to all of us well Carol we've taken up a lot of your time tell us what are you working on now
0: well, you know, my, my book is out and I have to tell you to be honest with you, it was a real struggle for me being ADHD and writing a book. I wouldn't recommend it to just anybody. I had a lot of people and even when I look at it now, I think, oh, I could have done this better and I could have done that better. But what I've learned is, and this is what all authors will tell you, just get through the first book and the second one will be much easier. So I'm starting to think about what my second book is going to be. It's going to be... Um, it's going to be different, obviously, in the first book. And it's going to have more to do with how to manage your mind and, and how your beliefs play such an important part in your results, and how to use healing professions, you know, to to be able to um, be the best person that you can be. So it's kind of a takeoff on what I've started here. If that makes sense.
1: That sounds really exciting. Can can you also tell us about your company, Live ADHD Free, and what it is?
0: Sure. What we do is everything ADHD. So I work with top executives, business builders, managers and supervisors, adults. I love to work with ADHD couples. Um, Money is often an issue with ADHD, so there's a lot of financial coaching and adult coaching, college students. I often work with kids beginning in the 10th grade. And by the time they graduate, they're ready for college. They're not going to flunk out because everybody supported them in high school, didn't teach them how to be independent functioning. So I work with them in high school, and then I work with them on Skype or FaceTime in college. I train coaches. So we're we're desperate for for well-trained ADHD coaches. There's parts all over this country where people cannot get ADHD coaching. So I do that. I consult. I do public speaking, teleclasses,
1: seminars. So... Well, again, the book is called Your Innovator Brain, The Truth About ADHD by Balboa Press. I hope folks will go and check it out. And I also hope they check out your website where they can learn more about your ADHD coaching. It's called Live ADHD Free, and the website is liveadhdfree.com. Carol, thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it.
0: Thank you so much. You asked the best questions.
1: You've been listening to New Books in Psychology with Eugenio Duarte. I hope you have a great week.